I would like to thank the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony once again for a, another opportunity to um, stand at this platform and to bring the Word of God as we believe from the prophetic scriptures of truth. It's been a joy now for 30 years and it's been that time. My hair colour has changed in that time and my bodily um, function um, has become a bit slower um, but we are still thankful that the Lord keeps us uh, not only day by day but step by step of the way. It's a great joy to be with you all this evening. The theme for this year is the prophecy of Zechariah. It's one of the Lord's last words to his people before 400 years of silence. One of the Lord's last words to his people before the incarnate word, our Lord Jesus Christ, came into this world. So it's an important word. Often the first words of a person are important, and the middle words, but surely the last words, are very important. And so thus is the book of Zechariah. The book divides itself beautifully into two halves. The visions, chapters 1 through 6, and the prophecies, chapters 7 through 14. Although last month Mr. Douglas gave us a subdivision in the second section, which is useful for our studies also. So this night we leave the visions behind us. We proceed now to the second half of the book where we see uh, the prophecies of the book. Mr. Toms has already alluded to the fact of Mr. Barnes' book. I was going to mention it anyway. If you can get a hold of it, it's still in print uh, by Craigle Publications. Um, an excellent book to use both as a study of the scriptures and as a devotional book. Marvellous. He tells us in that book that chapters 7 and 8 should always be kept together. And so I'm glad that the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony, in their wisdom, have kept these two chapters together. Because the two chapters answer a single question. Chapter 7 answers that one question in two negative answers. And we're going to look at that very briefly tonight. Um, chapter 8 answers that one question with two positive answers. So that maybe will fix your mind that these chapters must be kept together because it's a complete answer. A negative one and a positive one. But before going into the um, the passages, I just want to bring out one or two highlights first. Um, we are constantly reminded in these two chapters that this is the Word of God. We need to be reminded constantly that this is the Word of God. In chapter 7, 7 out of the 14 verses, half the verses of the chapter, speak that this is the Word of God. In chapter 8, 16 out of the 23 verses 
two-thirds, or over two-thirds, tell us that this is the Word of God. Constantly reminded again and again and again. And we need to be reminded of that. That this is the Word of God. Because today this Word of God is being undermined. And sadly to say, if you know what's happening in the United States, being undermined by those who would be friends of the faith. Not those who would be the opponents from outside, but those who are within. Questioning, is this really the word of God? Did Jesus actually say that? How do we know that Peter said that? How do we know that Paul said that? We are reminded tonight that this is the word of God. Another preliminary thought before we went to the passage, because it's another attack that we have today. Because we are Trinitarians. We believe in one God, in three persons. And we have to teach that today. You know, the average Jehovah's Witness that will go to the door of a Christian has a great advantage. Because, you know, they know more about the Trinity than the average Christian does. They don't believe it, but they know about it. And we as Christians, we need to know what we believe. Because only if we know what we believe, then we can deliver to a watching world what we believe. So let me just look at the Trinity here. In chapter 7, we are reminded that this is the Lord of hosts. Here's the name of the Father. And he is the one that in this passage has given to us this wonderful revelation. Secondly, we see the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son. Look at chapter 8 and in verse 3. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Zion. This will be the Son the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, not the Father, but the Son, personally, will be returning. And this is a prediction, note, this is a prediction before our Lord's first coming. So we must remember and bear that in mind. And also we must remember the work of God the Holy Spirit. Because he is the mediator of revelation. I've already mentioned those 23 passages in these two chapters. Which remind us that he is the mediator sent from both father and son to be in this world. Isn't it marvellous to think at this moment in time. Think about it at this moment in time. In this world. In this building, in this place, in your hearts, we have a person of the Godhead. Yea, invisible, but he nonetheless is here. And he is doing a great work of illuminating his people, saving the, the, the elect and drawing them to himself. He was the one who inspired these prophets. So that the message that we have tonight was used through an instrument. 
God always uses instruments. We are instruments. Whether we like it or not, we are his instruments. Instruments to be used in serving for the gathering together of God's elect people. And also in chapter 8, verses 20 through 23, God the Holy Spirit will be greatly used in the future through an elect nation preaching the one gospel of grace of the sovereign God to a needful world. I was reading today in my book, in my study book today, um, by Cornelius Van Til, and he says, the world needs the gospel. Well, we know that. But it hit me with force today. The world needs the gospel. And that's what we are. We are the instruments to take that gospel to this world. Right, we're going to look at chapters 7 and 8 tonight briefly. Um, and we're going to look at it in three different ways. We're going to look, first of all, in chapter 7, the historical setting. And I want to give you an overview of the chapter. And then I just want to give you some details. In chapter 8, well, we can't do a historical setting there because it's future. So it's a prophetical setting. The same overview. We can give an overview and give some details. Now, look with me tonight in the passage. Isn't it wonderful that God gives us in his word historic settings? The word is not just given to us in a vacuum. It's given. Look at um, uh, verse 1 of, of chapter 7. Notice the details there. We sometimes just let our eyes roll over them. But look, it's the fourth year of Darius. It's a specific year. Not the first year, not the fifth year, but the fourth year. It's on a specific month. The ninth month. Not the seventh, not the tenth. Specific historical setting of this chapter 7. That's what I'm trying to lay a foundation for us at this time. And notice again the fourth day of the month. So that in a day yet to come, in an age yet to come, in a place yet to come, when you are walking about and doing your work for the Lord in the ages to come, and you meet a man called Zachariah, and you say to him, what were you doing on the fourth day of the ninth month of the fourth year of King Darius? And you say, you know, because you read it in chapter 7 of Zechariah. So this whole passage is couched in history. And we must remember that. It's also nearly two years after, after the time that Zechariah received his first vision. If you go to chapter 1 and verse 1, that will verify that. So this is two years after the beginning of the visions that he receives the prophecies. So visions first, then prophecies. When Jerusalem was... It was a time also when Jerusalem was not inhabited. Look at verse 7 of chapter 7. 
Should you not hear the words which the Lord cried by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity and the cities thereof round about her were, were inhabited um, in the south and in the plain? Zechariah here is at pains to show us that now these towns are not inhabited. The places round about are not inhabited. The three places mentioned in that verse are the southern part of Judah and the three recognised geographical areas of that place. And they are desolate. They're without people. The cities are uninhabited. Verse 14 tells us the land, the whole land, lies waste. No man passes through it. Because if there's no one there, then there's no one to do business with or commerce with. It's a desolate place. We find in the prophet Haggai, it's two years after Haggai the prophet stirred up the people to recommence the building of the house of God. And it's also about two years before the Lord's house was completed. Ezra 6 verse 15. Now we've said all that to say that chapter 7 is crouched in history. It cannot be taken out of history the same as the first world war cannot be taken out of world history. The man landing on the moon cannot be taken out of history. This is historical as those two events were. Now let me give you an overview of the whole passage because it would be impossible to go through the details of each verse. So in this first part, when we're looking at the historical, let's look at this overview. What is happening here is that a delegation of men have come from Bethel to Jerusalem, where Zechariah is. We do not know how many men were, but we know that two of them are mentioned by name. And these two men have names which did not originate in the Hebrew language. They are Babylonish names. So they've come from that captivity. Or they are the children of those who returned from the captivity. So here again we see the historical situation. Here we see a mini Jerusalem meeting. And these men have come. Um, First of all, to ask what I mentioned earlier, that one question. And before we look at that question, we see that they also came to pray before the Lord. They wanted to come to where the temple was in, in, in progress of being completed. Um, they came to consult the priests, it tells us in verse 3. And also to consult the prophets. And it seems as if they were looking for some kind of validation. They were looking for both um, uh, an ecclesiastical authority and some kind of an official authority. So they were, they were looking for guidance here. These men, were, I think, were genuinely looking for guidance and seeking the will of the Lord. Now we see their question, that question that was mentioned earlier. The question is found in verse 3. What did they ask? 
Well, let's read the whole verse. And to speak unto the priest, the priests, which were in the house of the Lord of hosts, and to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these so many years? It was a question here concerning fasting and concerning a special fast which was in the fifth month. Um, should I, or he is maybe speaking for them corporately, so should I, should we weep in the fifth month? Uh, should we separate ourselves? Should we do this as we have done it for so many years? Now, we don't know how many years it we know it was in the previous 70 years of captivity um, and the time in between. Um, but it was a fast that had been initiated by the people themselves, not by God, not divine. It did not come with the verification of thus saith the Lord. So, that was the question. However, the Lord in part of his first answer adds a little more to that question um, in verse 5 speak unto the people of the land and to the priest saying when you fasted in the fifth that was the question that was asked and also the Lord adds now and the seventh month even those seventy years did you at all fast unto me even to me The Lord was saying that that question um, was born out of um, something which was self-derived. It was something that they did selfishly because these performances were not from the heart. They were outward observances. They were done by rote. Very much like we see today in many churches where there's nothing but dead formality. Going through the system. Following the traditions that we've always followed. Doing those things. Following the laws, not of the Medes and the Persians, but of the Presbyterians and the Baptists. Traditions. It was not born out of a heartfelt need for the Lord. So, let me give you first, the first brief um, negative answer. It's found in, if you're taking notes, verses 4 through 7 of chapter 7. The Lord calls to the people for a heartfelt repentance. That is what is really needed. Um, in verse 7, they had neglected the words of the prophets, and they... Um, and, and, and while they neglected the, the words of the prophets, um, they had that opportunity to be blessed. You know, we have the word of God before us now. How much do we use it? There could be a day and an age, maybe in the age of some of us here, we might have a few years left to see these things, if not certainly in the lives of our children, grandchildren, that these freedoms that we have now will be taken from us. It's starting now. 
We're seeing it going throughout Europe and the United States. We're seeing it in different parts of the world. We're seeing the collapse of this. The word of God is one of the first things that will be taken from us. And have we hid his word in our hearts? They had the privilege, the blessing of hearing the words of the prophets and they neglected it. That was the first indictment the Lord had against them. The second negative answer, verses 8 through 14, um, the Lord reminded them of their duties towards their neighbours. So here we can see duties towards God being neglected, duties towards our neighbour being neglected, and the Lord brings both of these to the hearts and minds of these people. He reminded them that they neglected the weaker in society, those who were vulnerable. They had hardened their hearts, verse 10 tells us. Um, they had turned away their hearts from them. And these were the people in society, the poor, the weak, the widow, the vulnerable, the needy, that required help. And so the Lord puts that one question into the context. You ask about two man-made, human-made, religious-orientated festivals when you've neglected the weightier things. Repentance towards me and faith in the words that I gave to you through the prophets. You've neglected also your duty towards the vulnerable society. So these two Answers take up chapter 7. Now, let us look at some of these sins. I'm not going to go through all of them. There's a catalogue of 21. 21 uh, both um, general and specific sins. Um, they are enumerated in verses 3 through 14. Um, there were sins before the captivity, sins after the captivity, sins which were positive, sins which were negative, and sins which were sins of ignorance. There were sins within religious practice and also moral observance. The sins were so extensively practiced that it mentions there that it was in the cities, it was in the towns, it was in the rural places, it was in the secluded places. Apostasy, once it takes root, is like a leaven that gradually spreads and spreads to all areas of society. They had failed in their duties. And one big failing they had is not enumerated in this chapter, but in chapter 8 and verse 13. And it shall come to pass, as you were a curse among the house, the heathen, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and ye shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Israel 
were chosen as a nation to be different from all the other nations. They were to be different in their leadership, different in their morals, different in their dietary standards, different even in their clothing, so that they might be distinct from the nations about them. And God's purpose for them in the past was that they might teach the truth about the true and living God. This they failed because by the divine standard the Lord says you are a curse to the nations, not a blessing. I'm keeping an eye on the time because in times past here we used to have a nice little clock at the end there which was fine it kept me on track it's not there anymore but I'm keeping on track tonight <coughs> so let us look at this then let us look at these 21 or so um, in a summary and I've got really four summaries for, for this first part in chapter 7 first of all and worst of all are the sins against God. We find that in verse 7 and verse 11, they neglected the prophets. Let's maybe read verse 7. Should you not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity and the cities thereof round about her and when men inhabited the south and the plain. He's saying that because that's not the situation at this time of Zechariah. They've neglected the words of the prophets. And the words of the prophets were the words of divine revelation. What we have in the scriptures are a divine revelation. Regardless of what modernist theologians and modernist ministers and modernist teachers in our schools and modernist teachers in our universities say, this is the word of God. It's not something that purports to be the word of God. It is not something that's like the word of God. It's not just something that contains the word of God. It is the word of God. You know, think of it. It has to be that. Because if we are to understand the word of God differently today than they did 50 years ago, than they did 100 years ago, than they did 400 years ago, then that would be inconsistent. Because God has given a revelation once, at different times, through various people, and that word was to be transmitted through the generations. All through the generations. And what was it to be? The same word. Exactly the same word. So that what the Lord desired to give to the church which was at Colossae or the church at Ephesus 
other church at Laodicea. It's exactly the same message that he wanted to give to the new churches at the Reformation. It was the same message that he wanted to give to the people during the 18th century Great Awakening. It's the same message that he desires to give people in the 21st century. It's, the message cannot be modified. It must be what says the Lord. This was their great sin, Israel. They had neglected God's word. They had neglected the prophets. They had neglected God's law, verse 12. And they had even persecuted the prophets. Second great division in those in chapters uh, 7 there is sins against neighbours. We've seen this already. And verse 9 tells us they lacked mercy. There were no bowels of compassion. There was just a, okay, you go on your way. We'll try and see what we can do. We'll remember you in prayer. Um, there was not that physical saying, we can help you. We can care for you. Come into my home. Eat at my table. Also during this time there were oppressions of the weakest people. Verse 10 tells us that. And also false judgments going out throughout the land. And maybe worst of all in verse 10. Uh, and oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. Well, we can see that that is exactly what they were doing. They were oppressing those different groups there. And they were imagining evil in their hearts against the Lord. And against the Lord's, and against his people. A third group in society was um, strangers in verse 10. Um, it mentions there um, not to oppress the stranger in verse 10. Um, and this is something that obviously they had, had done. And then the fourth group of sins that we find in this passage here are sins against the world. Well, we've seen that just a moment ago when they failed to be a blessing to the nations round about them and to the world round about them. And they became a curse to them instead. God's purpose as a nation for them was to be a, a witness of blessing and this they failed in. So that summarily is chapter 7. It is a chapter of darkness, a chapter of failure. It is really a great conclusion upon Israel as a nation from the time of Moses to the time of Zechariah, of failure. And that failure had resulted in that 70 years of captivity that was mentioned in verse 5. And they had returned from this. And had they changed? Well, I think the question that was mentioned in verse 3 was, no, they haven't. 
And the fact that our Lord enumerates by answering this question in two negative manners shows to them that they were still in the same condition. Now, I want us to move on to a far happier theme now than um, we have looked at thus far. Let me just follow the same pattern as before. We saw in chapter 7 a definite good historical setting. Now, what about chapter 8 when we come to chapter 8? Now remember I mentioned, keep in your mind that this is only a few years away from the 400 years of silence and the incarnation of our Lord. And of course we know that after our Lord was crucified, he predicted, he predicted the demise of Jerusalem, which came approximately 40 years later. And if you ever want to read something graphic about what happened to Jerusalem then and the atrocities that were um, uh, expended upon the people of Israel, all you have to do is um, look up in your uh, Google or your Amazon um, uh, the works of Josephus and he is graphic detail of how that nation was punished for these failures here that we've seen in chapter 7 and also for the greatest rejection of all the rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ now let me think of a future setting here well we find now there is a future setting without a doubt Notice in the chapter, the I wills. Seven times mentioned in these verses. Verse 3, verse 7, twice in verse 8, verse 12, verse 13, verse 21. The I shalls, six times mentioned in the passage. And the two in those days, found in verse 6 and in verse 23. And then a very significant one that we often overlook. Look at the two words that begin verse 11. But now. Now that means a change. It means a very definite change here. I mean, that's what it was like, but now. This is going to be different. A distinction between the ages. That dark age that we find in chapter 7 and the glorious age that we're about to see predicted and promised in chapter 8. There's also three verses that mean that also tell us it shall come to pass. Verses 13, 20 and verse 23. In these days, 15... Notice all this is not crouched here in a historical setting anymore. It's crouched in a future setting. Indefinite, yes. The historical one, we could pinpoint it. And we can't in time. But the future one, we can't. Remember, this is a prediction of events that will happen even after our Lord's first advent. So, there has to be the first advent. The birth of the church, the growth of the church, the testimony of the church, and sadly to say the age in which we're living in, the apostasy of the church. 
in, in all of its forms, in all of its forms. Now, what do we see here? We see a completely different situation here. It mentions in verse 3, the Lord dwelling in Jerusalem. Now, this cannot mean when our Lord Jesus Christ came in his first advent. Um, because it mentions that when the Lord there will dwell in Jerusalem, it will be called a city of truth. Now, it wasn't called that at the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was far from that. It was a city of error. It was a city of formality. In fact, if truth were known, it was a city of deception. Because Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, scribes, self-deceived. Self-deceived. When a person is self-deceived, then it's not difficult to deceive others also. So it has to be a future time, an indefinite time. Bear that in mind as we go through. What other things do we find? Well, we find, I like these domestic situations. Look at verse 4. There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem. Fifty years ago, I wouldn't have given that much of a thought. But now, it's precious to me a thought like that. That is speaking about a time of peace. That is speaking about a time when there's no worries, no cares, no concerns. Sitting, relaxing, enjoying. We've seen already in chapter 7 that the old and the elderly were the vulnerable in society, neglected. Not so in this new age. That's something different. And then the other wonderful illustration there found um, in, in, in verse... No, let's read the rest of verse 4. And every man with his staff in his hand for very age. Old age and... If we look to other passages of scripture, I believe there will be great longevity at that time. But look at verse 5. And in the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. I remember as a little boy, probably 7, 8, 10 to 10 or so. And we could play in the streets with footballs. Traffic wasn't so much in those days. And you could play. Children, parents could allow their children to go a mile off to a park and be relatively comfortable that they would be safe, that they were with friends, that there weren't the predators out there. You know, if you were to enact this verse 5 today, anywhere, forget about Jerusalem, anywhere, the streets of London, the streets of Edinburgh, Glasgow, New York. That would be a recipe for disaster. A terrible re recipe for disaster. Let me just give you the one little anecdote. just happened this week. Boston firemen were called out to a concern because of a lot of screaming going on to a house 
and they went into this house and I'm not going to go in graphic details but men dressed as women that's not what I wanted to tell you about what they found was a room that they had to break into where there was screaming children between 5 and 10 years old in there they could not play in the streets because they were predators today you could not do that in any street in any place in the world today there is no place that you could do this because they are vulnerable but we have a beautiful picture of here that children, boys and girls playing in the streets and being completely safe to enjoy the innocence of being young. Look at all those that are having their lives robbed from them. Young boys and girls today being taken from parents in New York State to have their bodies mutilated. Never to have families, never to have children. To have lives full of constant pain, medication, because they are being fed poisons into their body to suppress what they are in one gender and another. We have here a beautiful picture of a day and age which we cannot imagine now, at this moment in time. Well, what else can we gain from this chapter to um, give us this future setting? Um, dispersed peoples will be brought back look at verse 8 notice I will bring them and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and they shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness notice what the verse says we sometimes miss these things out the Lord says I will bring them back not Virgin Airlines not Alexander's coaches not cruise liners but I will bring them back here is a bringing back to the land by God to a place where they will dwell notice there is that phrase again at the end of verse 8 that we saw in verse 3 I will be their God in truth and in righteousness now that could not have been at our Lord's first advent. Because although there were people brought back, and although many came back on the day of Pentecost, but they met there for the first time, the challenge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They met with the truth of the Saviour. So, Inhabitants will come back, sorry, um, strangers will come back and they will be inhabiting the cities, Jerusalem in particular, the cities round about, the cities of Judah, verse 20 tells us, and the land will be fruitful, according to verse 12. So what is the overview of this chapter? 
We saw the overview of the chapter 7. Now the chapter 8 still continues to answer the question. That question, shall we weep on the fifth month in that fast? And the Lord has given these two negative answers. Now he gives two positive answers. But before we look at those, let us look at the overview of it. What is this in the future going to be? Well, according to verse 2, it will be the satisfaction of God's jealousy. Look at that. Verse 2. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with a great jealousy. I was jealous for her with great fury. God's jealousy must be satisfied. And he will be satisfied in this which he will do. Many people, Christians, have a problem with what we are considering tonight. Because they say no view for Israel in the future. These are good Christian people, well-meaning, well-taught in many cases. Um, but he do not see a future for Israel. That was the past. They had their chance. They had the opportunity. They neglected it. And God cast them off. Has God cast off his people? Well, I remember a man in the New Testament answering that question. And he said, God forbid. God has not cast off his people. But then they would say, well, okay, individuals are being saved, yes. So they say, well, God has not cast off his people completely. And we would agree with that. We thank the Lord for people like David Barn. I also meant to mention earlier in the introduction um, the comments of Dr. Adolf Sapphire on the same passage. Excellent. It's hard to to pick between Mr. Sapphire and Mr. Barn. I, I lean to Mr. Sapphire. I, I like him. Um, so we find here in this passage a complete difference. There's a new beginning. Look at verse 3. And I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. I believe here this is the second person of the Trinity, or Lord Jesus Christ. I will dwell in the midst. There are many verses that we could go to tonight, but we're remaining within this passage. But this, this means a wonderful new beginning. And the city will be called a city of truth. Not only that, but the, the mountain of the Lord, that area will be called the holy mountain. Isn't it wonderful? It will be called the Holy Mountain. In the overview of this passage here, it is what Jerusalem has been eagerly awaiting. To be a city of truth. Isn't that wonderful? The word truth today is a word that is used by many people by saying that there is no real truth all truth is relative. And we're living in an age now in which truth, our truth, our truth, the scriptures, is being called 
error. Our light is being called darkness. But there is a truth. And the word of God is the truth which we know and love and hold. And we should become more and more familiar with that truth in our daily lives. Because our Lord Jesus Christ is the living embodiment of that truth. Notice in verse 3, it's the divine personal presence of the Lord upon the earth. Not from heaven, but upon the earth. In Jerusalem. Why mention Jerusalem, a historical place, if it was not that the Lord was to be there? Why know there's a new Jerusalem? But that's in another context. And will be described in the, the, uh, the book of Revelation. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down. But this is Jerusalem upon the earth. Because the Jerusalem of above does not to be, need to be called a city of truth. It is a city of truth. Whereas Jerusalem will be a city of truth. So it has to be the physical, earthly Jerusalem. And also in this, the overview of this passage, it will give the whole world a time and a period of which they have never experienced before. Think of it. They reckon that there's only been about 276 years when there has been years of peace upon the earth in, let's say, the, the, the thousands of years that we've had. Just a few hundred years. And that's only the known. There's probably been the unknown wars that have been in other areas. But overall, there has never been a time of peace. Time of joy, time of happiness. A time when there has been no fear. You know, I sometimes think about this poor people in Ukraine just now, how it must be to live there. They're being bombed into the Stone Age without electricity without running water without good sanitation without regular food without protection the noise of missiles going over I mean, what must the minds of these children be like? how fearful here we're speaking about a wonderful and glorious time and it also speaks of a time when a particular nation, Israel, will be regathered and reunited and brought back into the land. You know, we, we don't see that today. Uh, Jerusalem, uh, sorry, Israel has about three and a half to four million people now in the land. But the vast majority, the 20 odd million abroad in the various countries, um, they like their livings. They like their, their mansions, their, their manufacturing empires. They like their luxury. Uh, they like their relative security of not having regular missiles put into their country. Um, but there will be a time when the Lord himself will bring back people into his land. And he will bring them back there for a purpose and that purpose will be that which they neglected to do 
when they were a nation in the past. They will now become, according to verse um, 16, they will be a blessing. These are these things that ye do. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbour. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And no longer will they be a curse, but they will be a blessing to the people all around them and to the nations around them. And according to verse 20, a complete change in the political structure of the world. Have we, have we been thinking about the political situation just now? Our church, we, we've made a new prayer calendar. And someone put in for Wednesdays um, prayer for governments. Obviously, government in London, government in Edinburgh. And, you know, it's exceedingly difficult to pray for governments just now. Because governments have lost their way. Look at the last few leaders we've had. They've lost their way. Look at the situation in America. They've lost their way. We're turning um, away from the ways that have been recognized in the past. Even in the United States, there's fears now that they're turning away from their constitution. Now, once you turn away from that, anarchy will, uh, will, will pursue them. It's difficult to pray for... Um, We've got one or two Christians in the Christian gov uh, in the government in Edinburgh, and I find it difficult how they could interact with those who are very definitely against sound Christian morals. But here's a time when it shows us there in verse twenty: "Thus saith the Lord." That's the authority. It shall yet come to pass that there shall come people and the inhabitants of many cities and the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying let us go speedily and pray before the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Isn't it marvellous that there's going to be a great and glorious change in the time yet to come. So, that's an overview of it. So what, what, what does this all mean then? Well, it means that there will be a divine leadership. The only true leadership that the world will ever know. You think of North Korea and Laos, Afghanistan. Those poor people under governments that they do not want. Governments which do not act in their best. Even in Russia, exactly the same. The oligarchs in it for themselves, not for the benefits of the people. There will be a true leadership, theocratic leadership, divine leadership, based upon truth and righteousness. And there will be a centrality of truth because it will emanate from Jerusalem. And Israel will become a nation, think of that now, a nation of evangelists. You know, we are just a small country in Scotland, but we've sent out a lot of missionaries to the world. A lot of missionaries. 
in proportion to the size of our country, but not in proportion to the need that the world has, and certainly not in these days. Here will be a time when there will be missionary after missionary after missionary going here and there and everywhere and the truth of the Lord will be disseminated from place to place to place. It has never been that before. And we cannot have that without the Lord. Now some believers think they can have it without the Lord. They think the church will be victorious. This poor, decrepit church of which we are a part of just now. We're a fragment of the, the population of the nation, the population of the world. We're insignificant. We're very few that believe these things tonight. Very few. I keep remembering people of that. They know that what we have, we're in the minority at the moment. The great minority. But here is a time when the nations will be benefited. Individuals will be benefited. All the ages will benefit. The young, the old, the vulnerable. Because the principle of righteousness will permeate the nations. And the centrality of thought and focus and worship will be upon one Lord. Isn't that wonderful? At the moment we have lords many, and gods many. We have multitude, a plerotha of gods and things to be worshipped. No unity. Even amongst the visible Christian church, we have very little Christian unity. But here will be a time when there will be a unity of thought. A unity of love, a unity of action, a unity and a principle of righteousness which will extend throughout the nations. Not just for one year, not just for one century, but for a millennium. A glorious period of time in which all these principles which the Lord desired of the nation in chapter 7 was the desire in chapter 8 we see that this will be fulfilled blessings will be enjoyed not just individually we all enjoy our individual blessings but how much better is when we enjoy a corporate blessing as a, a church blessing what would it be like on a national scale I don't know. I don't know how we, how we could experience that. And then multiply that into an international scale. How glorious and wonderful is even that consideration or that thought. The representatives of the Lord himself will go forth from Jerusalem and will take the great truth to the world. Let me just conclude by bringing these two chapters together somewhat. The two chapters must remain together. In fact, if you could put 
a visual representation on your wall. A visual picture of chapter 7 chapter 8. One would be very black and the other one would be extremely bright. The two chapters must be kept together because one speaks of what has been. The other speaks about what shall be. The two chapters, as you've seen tonight, very briefly, form a very sharp contrast, the one to the other. One of them, man's failure. The other one, God's victory. They, as a duo of chapters, speak to you and me today. One chapter, chapter 7, should remind us, as the Lord's people, to turn from selfish ways and to turn to the Lord's ways. And the other chapter, chapter 8, should tell us that we should constantly look for divine help because the, the proceedings of chapter 8 will not come to pass without divine intervention. They reveal to us as individuals that if we look back, we look back with regret. Chapter 7 is a chapter, or should be a chapter, of regret. And maybe we can look at that in our own lives. I know that I have, I look back and I have a number of regrets. Um, but we should be Christians in three tenses. Not just to remember where we came from, but to live in the present. But to look to the future also. And we should ever look to the future. Because the future for us is filled with such glorious and wonderful prospects. And those prospects will fill the yearnings of our hearts this night. Amen. Let us pray.